Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 23. Have you wondered, what are Python wheels? How are they used to package Python code? Does Python use pass-by value or pass-by reference? This week on the show, Davian Amos is here to help answer these questions, and he's brought another batch of PyCoders weekly articles and projects. We cover an article called, What are Python wheels and why should you care? David talks about a real Python article about pass-by reference in Python. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including transcribing speech to text, four powerful features Python is still missing, 10 awesome Pythonic one-liners, and even more options for packaging your Python code. So let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, David. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me again. So what are you starting off with this week? Well, this week I've got an article called Four Powerful Features Python is Still Missing by Serdar Yegulop. This is on InfoWorld. And this talks about these four features that are maybe common in some other languages that aren't in Python. He uses this word missing. They're still missing in Python. What I think is interesting about reading this article is asking yourself whether or not you actually think they're really missing. Maybe <laughs> there's a reason they're not in Python or that, you know, maybe they're not, uh, they're not needed. So it's, uh, we'll just go through the four here. Sure. Uh, the first one that he talks about is true constants. So this is a big one. And I know if you come from like a statically typed language, if you come from Java, C++, even JavaScript has constants, you know, values that once you assign them, they cannot change for the lifetime of your program. Or uh, in a similar manner, maybe like a, an argument to a, a function, or maybe I should use the word parameter. Like you've got a parameter on a function that anything gets passed into that should be treated as a constant for the lifetime of that, that function. So these are things that don't quite exist in, in Python. And I say don't quite because in, in new versions of Python, there's uh, actually a little bit of a workaround, sort of. We'll get to that in, in a second. But, okay, you know, Python is a dynamic language and uh, it's also not compiled or well you know people say is python interpreted or is it compiled and the answer is yes <laughs> this <laughs> joke goes it is compiled to bytecode and then the bytecode is is interpreted by the, the interpreter but unlike a language like c++ or something that it's getting compiled to machine code and and that's what's what's running python doesn't doesn't work like that so there's no way to guarantee that the value of some variable is going to stay that same value for the entire lifetime of the program. It can be changed. And that goes for all sorts of, I mean, you can, you can change the values of built-in, like in, like say in the math module, there's like, I was thinking of those constants, right? mathematical constants, right? Like pi that, you know, pi is a mathematical constant, but you can change pi in, in Python. You can you know, import pi from math and then set, set it to whatever value you want. If you're an engineer and want to call pi 3.14, then, you know, go for it. And uh, I mean, I guess 
Pi already is is rounded off in uh, in any uh, computer language, so it's not like it's the true value of of Pi, which is irrational. But but yeah, so constants don't exist in in Python, and they're never going to exist. I don't think it's it's really a missing feature. I think it's just the nature of Python. It's dynamic. You know, there's a the famous quote from from Guido that says, you know, we're all consenting adults here. You're responsible for your actions. If you change the value of something that's not supposed to change, well, that, you know, that's your prerogative. Maybe you're doing it for a good reason. You have a good reason to change it. So Python gives you that that opportunity. Now there is in the in the typing module, uh, and this is a newer, a newer deal. I'm not sure exactly when it See, this is actually, okay, version 3.8. Like I say, I thought it was just within the last couple of uh, versions, but Python version 3.8, there is a final type in, in the typing module. And this, you can, uh, you can set a value to be of type final, which means that it's not supposed to be reassigned. Right, okay. Now, the language itself doesn't enforce anything, so you can still reassign it. It's not gonna throw an error. But if you're using something like MyPy, or some other type checker, then it should raise an issue for you and say, hey, you know, you said this was supposed to be final, yet, you know, here on this other line, you're trying to reassign a new value to it. So right. you might want to uh, take a look at that. So that's probably the closest that we're ever going to get in Python to having a constant. And I think that's fine. I think that uh, really constants aren't a, a missing feature. The next feature he talks about is true overloading. And this is the concept of, you know, overloading a function. So if I have a function, uh, I don't know, add X and Y, it takes two, two parameters, X and Y. And if they're numbers, like if they're of an integer type, I want them to be added the same way you would add any other number. But if they're strings, I want them to be concatenated. So it's got these two different behaviors depending on the type of the argument. Another reason you might overload something would be uh, maybe f- the number of arguments that get passed to it or, you know, in the order that they're in. Or, so there might be lots of reasons you might want to overload a function. Keep the same function name, but it has different behavior based on how it, it gets called. So this is not something that you can really do in Python. There's, I won't get into the details. There are some sort of hacky ways to sort of deal with this if you really, really need to. but I think for most Python developers, this is sort of like, yeah, I mean, give it a different name that maybe is more explicit of what it's what it's doing. That might be more Pythonic or more in the spirit of of Python. The other thing is you can dispatch within the function call, you can say, well, you can use is instance to check the type of a variable and use a an if statement to do the different to have different behavior based on the what type of variable it is. So there are ways to kind of do it. It's not that's not real overloading though. Now what's interesting is back in 2007, this there was a PEP introduced 3124 for overloading generic functions, interfaces, and adaptation. That's the title of the PEP. Its status is deferred. Huh. So it was it wasn't rejected. It's been deferred. I guess I mean, 2007. So uh, quite the deferral. <laughs> a long deferral. So I don't know what the status, you know, maybe someday we'll see something like that in Python. Again, I would argue this is not necessarily a missing feature, though. I think that being a dynamic language and not being statically typed makes true overloading difficult. 
and also kind of unnecessary. I mean, maybe maybe rename your function so that it, it's telling you what type it's expecting or something like that. The next feature, tail recursion optimizations. So if you've written a recursive function in Python, you probably have seen this, like, I can't remember the exact name of the error, but the, there's like a recursion limit that you reach in Python. And it's pretty low. It's, you know, a few thousand iteration or uh, recursions, uh, I think. What tail recursion optimi optimization does is helps guarantee that you're using as little of the stack, like the call stack, as needed when you're getting into these re recursive functions. So it helps optimize things like memory and speed and, and things like that on the on the stack itself, on the call stack. Now, one of the big downsides to tail recursion optimization is you lose the ability to provide tracebacks in some instances. So this is one of the big reasons this doesn't exist in, in Python. And I think I can say, I mean, again, this goes back to 2009, but Guido was pretty definitive in saying Python will never have tail call optimization. And he's actually got uh, a blog post that he posted back in April 27th of 2009 explaining this decision. And a lot of it hinges on being able to provide these detailed uh, tracebacks that if they were missing, he just, he just felt like the optimization wasn't enough, wasn't a good enough feature to outweigh the the benefit to miss out on that stuff yeah yeah to miss out on, on providing that that traceback so so that's what's what's going on there so is it missing i guess you know there's other languages that have it some people are really big fans of this type of optimization recursion is an interesting thing i come from a, a math background i studied math in in college and recursion in mathematics can be really beautiful and it can provide very elegant solutions to things and this sort of translates into programming world, you see a recursive function to solve some pro some sort of problem can look like, wow, that just looks really beautiful. It's really simple. It's really clean looking, but it's not always a good idea. And, and it's usually inefficient. So really Python puts the focus rather than uh, focusing on recursion, it focuses on iteration, uh, which is a little bit of a different paradigm. And uh, that's really where the focus lies in Python. So recursion as a whole, something that I think most Python developers try to avoid. The final of the four features that are claimed being missing here is multi-line lambdas. So a lambda, it's a way to write an anonymous function that doesn't have a function name. Right. It can only be a single line and it can only do, it's, it's limited to what it, what it can do. I mean, so you might write a lambda that's just transforms the input into something like, you know, applies a function to it or, or something right. like that. So see it all the time in data science, like applying things to pandas, like right. data frame. Like, just yeah. like, I want to do this one little thing. I want to do this little statement. I don't want to write an outside function that's multi-line that could be encapsulated in a single line and right. therefore in some ways simplifying it. Right. Exactly. So in some cases, if all your Lambda function does is say like, you know, take some input X and apply some function to X. The question there is, well, why are, why are you writing a Lambda? Like if you're using it in, like applying it to a data frame and your Lambda is just like, yeah, take X and just apply 
this function to X. Well, then instead of passing the Lambda, just pass the function. <laughs> it does the exact same thing. So there's, there's that, right. I guess, with Lambdas. You see that a lot. And I think it's just people think that, oh, it has to be a Lambda or something for this situation. Uh, but anyways, that's kind of beside the point uh, here. But let's say it's doing something slightly more, more complicated. But still, it has to fit on like a single line. Right. You know, in Python, I think, yeah, with Lambdas, why? Just define a function. Just give it a name. <laughs> and uh, right. maybe it makes your code more readable. It's probably easier to maintain. It doesn't require as much explanation. It makes the function reusable. It makes the function reusable as well. And you can document it. <laughs> yeah. With doc strings, the whole thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Guido Van Rossum wrote in 2006, he says, looking at these multi-line lambdas, and they discussed some solutions and everything to that, it really boiled down to him to, I guess, how how statements were grouped and indention-based blocks in the middle of an expression and just things that he just felt like they were they were unacceptable the way they looked. So it was really, there wasn't good syntax. It was an aesthetical sort of reason for not including those. So that's kind of what it boiled down to, I guess, in, in, in Guido's mind. It just didn't look right. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also a really good argument to made that you know, in any language, should you really be using anonymous functions? Yeah, they've got their place, but maybe they get overused. Maybe they get abused sometimes. So again, I'm not really sure I see this as a missing feature. Really, I guess we went through all four of these and said, yeah, they're not really missing. But what I liked about this article was that he discusses the reason why they don't, they're not in Python. So he says, yeah, these are some features that might be quote unquote missing, especially if you're coming from other languages to Python. But here's the rationale behind why they're not included in the language. Yeah, cool. Yeah, good food for thought. Yes, I think the probably the biggest thing is that you know they're they have been thought about. <laughs> and yes. There have been conversations about these things. Yeah, they're not arbitrary decisions, right? And you have to you have to make decisions. And I mean, there's other languages I I think that are out there that allow you to do large amounts of different things. And then the code really, it starts to really look different, you know, depending on the different users and can become unreadable. Like there's like these different, now different uh, syntactical like variations that are almost like, like their own little sub language, which is kind of strange. And so (laughs) you have to make decisions, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. What do you got? My first one is all about, a topic that I was searching for recently because, you know, I've admitted multiple times that I'm the beginner here and still learning Python. I have kind of this weird background of programming where, sure, I started playing around with basic a long time ago, and then I learned SQL, and then I've learned all these other kind of standalone things and played in JavaScript and all these different sort of language pools, and then sort of landed on Python and really started to dig in. Well. This is a topic that I've been confused about and was recently searching on. And I actually searched inside of RealPython because I wanted to learn a little more about it. And it was about Python wheels. Mm. And so I typed in wheels and this article came up. And, you know, being that I'm a part of the team, I was able to read this article and what I was like, well, when was this published? And, <laughs> and actually it hadn't been published yet. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, this is kind of crazy. This is like perfect timing in the sense that this is something I want to learn more about. And it's just about to come out. Well, the article came out. It's by Brad Solomon. It's called What Are Python Wheels? And 
Why should you care? And where I've seen wheels being used in more than anything and where I wanted to understand more about what's happening with them kind of lends this idea to distribution of applications. And I've kind of gone down this little rabbit hole and it's going to be a bit of a theme for me this week. Also going off of what my conversation was with Russell last week about beware and briefcase, this idea of like, you know, okay, creating applications or sharing your code with others. Yeah. And a Python wheel is a, a tool that's used for packaging your code. And I'll just go here to information from the Python packaging authority. Um, not all developers have the right tools or experience to build these components written in these compiled languages. So Python created the wheel, a package format designed to ship libraries with compiled artifacts. In fact, Python's package installer, pip, always prefers wheels because installation is always faster. So even pure Python packages won't will work better with wheels. And it's interesting because you might have seen that before where you can download something uh, if you're not installing directly from pip, like doing a pip install. Mm -hmm. You might have seen a distribution like available somewhere where it is a .whl. And it's actually a zip kind of hidden. <laughs> it kind of goes yeah. back to this whole like executable Python inside of a zip, which you've talked about back and forth a little bit lately. Yeah. And so the article goes real in depth. Again, a really great article from Real Python that it seems to be like the trend lately is these really deep dives into these topics. You know, the previous one with Gerard on the whole front of the import packaging, yeah, importing and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So not only does it talk about like what wheels are, it talks about this idea of distribution. And so it talks about source distribution, which is abbreviated SDIST, S D I S T, yeah. versus like a built distribution. And then it talks about the wheel file name structure where you might have seen a wheel before or might have the name of it. Might, it might say, you know, the package is called cryptography and then it'll have a dash and then the version number, which is, you can be like three characters, you know, 2.9.2 or something like that. Then it actually tells you in there what it's constructed for. In this case, it's C Python. So it might say CP 3.5, you know, so or 3.5 or higher basically. And, you know, even down to the level of like saying, okay, this is ready to go for, it's been compiled for, or is prepared for Mac, Mac OS or a particular version of Linux and, um, or say something on windows. And in some cases it's really nice. There are what are called universal wheels where it's purely Python. And in that case, the wheel, those later things I was talking about, will actually, it, it doesn't matter, you know, if it's on mac or or you know what have you it's just this is for python 2 or for python 3 right and there are ones that are like that that are work for both python 2 and 3 they call them universal and then there's pure python ones which are basically a, a wheel that could be set for just python 2 or just python 3 and it's really neat because it it helps you work with the tools you go through the article and you're installing setup tools and you're installing setup pi and through it, you're you're basically you know able to create these distributable packages at that point. And you might say, well, how's that useful? Well, you can give that to another Python user with basically your entire code ready to go, and they could pip install it into their Python installation. It's something where you could also use this tool called Twine, which then you could actually put it up in the Python package, uh, PyPI, if you wanted to. But one of the things I thought was kind of interesting that I've heard of before, 
and I've heard some other people talking about it is someone saying, well, we have our own sort of like packaging system, like locally, like they don't go to PyPI to gather the different packages that they need to install for the different, you know, projects that they're working on. They have their own sort of resource for that. And so this would help if you were doing something like that, where you needed to have these, you know, installable, ready to go wheels, you know, that are compiled for your particular purposes or within your organization. And so that kind of helped me kind of wrap my head around that, that idea. Anyway, it it just kind of was an, a nice deep dive into a topic that I was like trying to understand what's going on with it and kind of goes back into some of the history of it. And, you know, some of the issues with, if you're including something we've talked briefly about here of like C extensions or parts of C code in this that, okay, it's going to actually need to compile that stuff to be part of your, your distribution. And so what's involved in that. And that's where it kind of gets into that thing beyond like a pure Python wheel uh, where it would need to be prepared for a particular platform, which right again, kind of goes back to a little bit about the whole conversation I had with, with Russell about 32 bit, 64 bit windows, Linux and so forth. And then, you know, there's like a whole subset for Linux cause there's uh, kind of a wide variety of things out there for Linux. And that leads into a little bit of Docker and varieties of Linux that are in Docker. And that's going to lead me into another topic I'll talk about later, but um, there's some, some issues with, you know, compiling things for a Docker container uh, for certain versions. Like there's this really popular version of a Docker container called an Alpine. And unfortunately it doesn't use yeah. quite the same resources. And it, even though it looks like this nice, small little container, it's not always the best choice for uh, doing Python in. And so that's going to lead me to another resource. And I'm hoping to have another guest here, Itamar, um, and talk about his article later. He writes for a, a website called Python Speed, Itamar Turning Drawing. And um, he has a whole thing about packaging, which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more later. Yeah, he probably has a few things to say about Alpine. <laughs> yeah, um, it seems like it. There's, yeah, he's written a lot of good stuff on that. But uh, yeah, the the Wheels article is really really cool. I mean, it's it's uh, it's so in depth. But I think you know it, it sums up just it's one of those things that I think just a lot of people they interact with kind of on a regular basis, but don't really understand. Right. Right. I mean, or you don't really need to. I mean, you can be a successful Python developer. And go years without ever fully understanding like how any of this stuff actually works. Um, especially if you're not like distributing your own code to like PyPI or things like right, that. Right. Or packaging it um, up and you know, yeah, trying to create your own local, you know, distribution system or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, wheels are are cool. I mean, they solve quite a few issues. And uh there's this great list uh in the article that just sort of runs through what all these different advantages are. And, uh, you know, it says they're, they install faster, yeah. uh, which you mentioned, you know, the, the Python packaging authority, that's what they say they install faster. They're smaller. So, uh, they download quicker on, on most internet connections. They cut the whole setup.py execution out of the equation. That actually makes them safer because if you don't know what's in setup.py, then, well, it could be executing arbitrary code. It might be doing something uh, malicious. Right. Goes back to that security issues that we were talking about recently of malware being distributed potentially, and this would be a way right. unbeknownst to you through setup by. Yeah. So, you know, they're safer and they, they provide consistency. So if, you know, it takes a lot of the moving parts out of the installation uh, with PIP and just makes it, uh, so you, you, 
you would expect it to install correctly consistently yeah <laughs> there's fewer points of failure yeah so good stuff for sure so what you got next well the next thing i've got kind of continues the theme from before on maybe features of of python yeah this article is called 10 awesome pythonic one-liners explained the author just has their first name andreas i don't know their their last name they just uh, chose to put their first name on here but this is uh, an article that goes through 10 of these like one-liners in python and and how you how you use them some of these are really cool some of them i would say they they're cool but maybe not the best way to do it in in some some cases so we'll we'll go through and 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 talk about these and i'll go through them relatively quickly but the first one is to swap two variables this is kind of a classic you've written code in other languages and then you see this in python and it's like mind blowing right <laughs> when you see it this is where like if you've got two variables a and b how do you swap values of of a and b well in most languages you have to create a third temporary variable assign one you know one of the values to that temporary variable and then assign the other value to the other one and then the other one gets the temp value like yeah it's like this little switcheroo uh with this third temporary variable well in python you don't have to do any of that you just do a comma b equals b comma a yeah and the way that assignment works this just sort of quote unquote magically works for you so that's that's a neat one in in python multiple variable assignment that's that's number two so and actually this is kind of wrapped up in the first one yeah using the tuples again yeah so you can assign multiple values to multiple variables on a single line so if you had you know a comma b comma c equals one comma two comma three then a equals one b equals two c equals three there's that there's also this uh, using the asterisks to do uh, like tuple unpacking yeah well in your assignment so if you have a list one two three four five you can do a comma b comma star c equals and the list one two three four five and what happens is well a gets assigned the value one b gets assigned the value two and then c because it's got the asterisks in front of it just gets the list of all the remaining values so it'll be assigned the list of three four and five so right this is something it's it's cool it's a really cool feature i don't know that i've ever actually used it there might be in some case you know there might be some cases that i've I've used it. So I, I was recently doing some command line argument parsing kind of stuff. And that's the place I've seen it. Yeah. I can see it being used that there. I think where I've used it is where like I've, I've done some, maybe some like uh like a, like sorted a list of values or something. And then I just need the first two. And so I'll do like, yeah, you want to extract a couple like X comma Y comma, and then star. And then I use the underscore for like my throwaway stuff like i just want the first two and then i throw away everything else i think i've done stuff like that before but yeah it's it's a it's not something you use i think like every day but it's a cool a cool feature the third one liner sum over every second element of a list well you've got this built-in sum function that can take any iterable really and add everything together interestingly enough they don't even have to be numbers they just have to have work with the addition operator uh, so you could concatenate strings this way. But you've, if you use the extended slicing syntax, so this is where you've got like the step part in the slice. So if you've got a list and you take a slice, one colon five, well, that would be elements starting at index one and up to but not including index five. Well, if you add another colon, then in another number, say two, then what that means is every other element in the slice. Right. So from an index one to index five, 
but in steps of two. So index one, then index three, and then it would end because the two more would be five, but it doesn't include the one at index five in that in that slice. You could use this to say sum over every other element in, in the list or every third element, anything like that. So it's really not so the summing part of this isn't really, I think, the important thing. It's that's this extended slicing syntax is actually kind of the cool, cool thing going on here. Deleting multiple elements, again, using the extended slice slicing syntax. So if you've got a list and you want to delete every other entry in the list, then you can use the del keyword and uh, use the extended slicing syntax to delete every other element in the list all on one line. Right. The fifth one, read a file into an array of lines. So here he's using a list comprehension. Inside the list is line.strip. So he's stripping off any, any uh, white space on the left and right side of, of these strings that he's calling a line. For line in, and then open using the open uh, built-in open function, some file, file.txt. So what this will do is read each line in the file uh, one by one, strip off any white space on the left and right side, and then put it into this this list. So you'll end up with a list of each line in the file without any leading or trailing white space. Now, it's cool. You can do this all in one line, but there's kind of a, an issue going on here with uh, with open. You've opened the file, but you haven't closed it. Mm. So this is going to leave that resource hanging open on uh, in your program which is kind of a no-no. You should always clean up after yourself. You know, it's once, you know, the garbage collector is going to come in and, and close the file at some point, but you don't know when that's going to happen. And you don't know, you know, if it's a huge file, you probably want to free up resources for the rest of the system. So yeah, so that part of it is a little like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe that's not the right right thing right. To, to use there. If all you're going to do is iterate over the lines in the file, so th then that's why you're, using a list comprehension to get all these lines. Well, there's actually on, on file handlers, when you, when you use the open function, you get a file handler or a file object back from it. Those have a read lines method right. uh, on that that you can use to iterate over each line. So you would open the file like in a width with the width keyword and then inside of the width block, use the read lines to loop over everything and, and process it. And I think that's a much more Pythonic way of, of doing something like that. And he also mentions that uh, in the same sort of spirit, you can, as, as this uh, list comprehension, you can do, use the list function and just call, just pass, you know, the results of open into that. So you can do like list parentheses, open parentheses, file, uh, file name. And then you get a list of all the lines in the, in the file. But again, this leaves that resource open and, you know, hang in there. And it's just uh, not the best, the best practice. Number six is writing a string to a file. And this one is, it's a one-liner, but it's sort of a two-liner because it's with, he's saying with open the file in append mode as F. So F is the file handler here and then colon. And then on the same line, F dot write hello world. Right. So yeah, I mean, Python allows you to do this. If you've just got a single line after the colon, then, you know, you don't actually have to put it on a new line. But I think a lot of people would sort of look at this and be like, yeah, just put it on the, put it on the next line. It's <laughs> more readable. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. But you know, nothing wrong. It's, it's an, you know, he's using with here. That would be 
a good way to to do this so that the so that the, the file resource is closed when uh yeah. when the with block especially since you're appending to it right exactly yeah however there is a way to do this as a one-liner that would be like a true one-liner and and not have to worry about closing the file or anything and that is using the pathlib library path objects have a write text write text method if you've got a path to a like a a file then you can just do write text pass the text into it and it'll write it to the file open it close it take care of it all for you i guess uh, i don't know off the top of my head maybe there is a mode with write text maybe it has a i'm not i'm not 100 sure but what I was going to say is, you know, here we're appending something to the end of the file. Write text would be like replacing all of the content. Right. But it's like once you've got that, you know, that path and you could do it all on one line, you could do, you know, path, capital P, and then in parentheses, you know, a string to the path, close parentheses, dot, write text, and then the text that you want to write to it. So that in my mind would be kind of a like a truer one liner that writes text to a file. List creation, uh, again, just sort of showing off power of list comprehensions. Yeah. So here he's just creating a string of lists, or sorry, a, a list of strings <laughs> that that says like, hi, Alice, hi, Bob, hi, Pete. So what he's, what he's got here is the string hi, and then concatenate that with, with X for X in the list containing the strings, Alice, Bob, and Pete, just leveraging the list comprehension. So really... List comprehensions are a very useful way to do one-liners yeah. in Python. And that is something I totally agree with. That's really cool. List mapping. So this is where we're using the map function on a list to take a list of strings and convert them, a list of strings containing numbers and convert them to uh, integers. So here he's got list, map, and then int, and then the string. So yeah, it's a one-liner this is really kind of a functional way of, of writing this. Uh, right. Just using map. Yeah. Using that map function. I think a lot of people would say, yeah, I would also just maybe do this as a, as a comprehension and just do your, you know, int X for X in, you know, the list of, of strings with numbers in it. So, but either way works, either way is good. Another nice little one-liner. He talks about creating sets using set comprehensions. So that's another cool thing, kind of like list comprehensions. Although the advantage of sets is that uh, they won't contain any duplicate values. And they're really fast if you just want to check that something exists inside that list or inside that set. Yeah. Once you've got it, it's uh, really fast for checking membership. And then the final one is checking if something is a palindrome. And this is kind of cool. This is uh, kind of a clever use, again, of the extended slicing notation. So if you've got a phrase... And the phrase here is the string D-leveled. And you, you want to know, is that a palindrome? Well, just compare it. Say, does that equal to uh, the phrase where you've got the, the slice with uh, no start and stop? So you're slicing, looking at the entire string, but your step in that extended slice is negative one. Yeah. So you actually go from the the end to the beginning and you just it. check is the first one equal to the last one is the second to second one equal to the second to the last one uh things like that so this is kind of a quick way to uh check if something is a palindrome that's a really common um simple interview question python interview question mm -hmm. that somebody could spend a long time creating a elaborate 
function <laughs> to to right. create it. And again, this is something that if if they knew about a little more about string slicing, they would know how to solve it in one line. <laughs> solve it in one line. Yeah, exactly. So that's uh that's kind of a cool a cool thing. Again, the the trick here is, you know, you probably don't check for palindromes in the real world very often. Right. <laughs> uh but again, it's just knowing that this extended slicing thing exists and that you can use negative uh steps with it to to do things in reverse. There's also the reverse built-in function yeah. that, that kind of works the same way and might actually be more efficient in some cases because with the slice you're creating like a whole new copy of the string in reverse order. So there's you know that can sometimes be be an issue uh if you know sometimes it's not always an issue but something to keep in mind. And then he's got as a final bonus the one liner of all one liners, I guess, import this to see the Zen of Python. Um, yeah, print out. Yeah. So yeah, 10 awesome one-liners in Python explained with some of my additional commentary on them as to <laughs> <laughs> why some of them are cool, but might want to think about doing it a different way. Yeah, I think about the the slicing operator, again, not only being used for strings, but, you know, again, for lists or other things that you could be comparing, you know, the the order of and things like that. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. One thing, this real quickly, just to kind of throw this out there. One thing that, you know, I worked for Python for a while before I ever knew that you could slice and, and even use like index notation or subscript notation on a range. Did you know that? You, like if, if you have a range, you could slice it. Hmm. Okay. I was unaware of that. I always thought ranges were like iterators or like a generator or something like that, but they're not. But they're also like not a list. They're like this weird, and they're not weird. I mean, it it totally, it's, it's a you know concrete thing. Yeah. But I think there's kind of a misconception in Python that range is like an iterator over a set of numbers, and it's not. It's not an iterator, which is why you can like if it were an iterator, you would not be able to slice it. You would not be able to that none of that stuff would work on a on an iterator. But it's also not a list. It's more efficient than than a list. So they're kind of a weird little in between that uh, anyway so just a <laughs> yeah construction there. of yeah. some sort yeah <laughs> okay this week i want to shine a spotlight on another real python video course it covers a topic that is critical if you want to have your python code work with files and directories and it's titled practical recipes for working with files in python the course is based on a real python article by Vuissoule and Lovu and in the course instructor Liam Pulsifer takes you through how to retrieve file properties, how to create directories, match patterns and file names, traverse directory trees, make temporary files and directories, delete files, copy, move, and rename, and even create and extract zip archives. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to manage files and directories in Python. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections, and you get code examples for the techniques shown. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. My next thing is a kind of a project, kind of an article combination. It's a uh, by Matt McKay from Full Stack Python, mm -hmm. and it's how to transcribe speech recordings into text with Python. So it's a whole transcribing tool. It uses a API from a company called Assembly AI, and you can set up a free account for it, and it lets you take 
an MP3 and convert it into text if it's speech, right? So I, I played around with it. It's a well-formed tutorial going through, you know, creating these things. And it, it's kind of funny. I, I like how the structure is done where you're building this first thing to basically, you know, you, you, you contact assembly API, AI, sorry, and you get your own API key. But the first file you're creating is to upload the file to that service. And then meanwhile, while it's digesting the MP3, you're creating another tool to basically tell it what to do, which is to transcribe it. And then the third one is to then download the information back from it. Okay. And it's it's enough to kind of get you going. And I was able to accomplish it within, I don't know, like probably about 40 minutes this morning, just kind of playing around with it. Nice. And I, I used my first version of uh, example I used was the episode zero. The oh, Okay trailer if yeah. you will of of the podcast and so and it did a good job and it occasionally screwed up here and there with like you know where i think a comma and so forth would go but it did a very good job of you know all the words and all the very specific things that are in there and i think the api lets you do more advanced things like uh have it identify specific guests you know by different types of voices and and so forth and oh, you know it's, it can be a paid thing for free you get I think a couple hours a month to just kind of play in it. Yeah. But it's a neat tool. If you're interested in, in playing around with speech to text, I think it's kind of nice uh, API to kind of mess with. And the project leaves you off at a really good place where now you could optimize it. You're doing most of it with doing simple sort of arg parse stuff inside of it. It's kind of funny because I, I, uh, I have an interview set up in the next week or so with savannah who's the project manager for pylance and yeah. so it was my first chance of i had just installed pylance and i was playing with it and it pylance does some interesting things where it will import things automatically right. for you That's like right. literally adding the import statements yeah. which is kind of strange so like if you if it suggests something to you like let's say you know using requests and for whatever reason you capitalize r for response because it came up like as a choice or something like that, it will then import that portion of the request. It'll say, you know, from request import, you know, capital response. And I'm like, Oh, I don't want that. <laughs> and then if I've made the correction, so it's kind of like, it's, it's very, uh, it's very eager. Gotcha. <laughs> is. So I, I want to talk to her a little bit about that anyway. So that should be an interesting uh, interview, but this is a great tutorial. I, I think it's a really neat way to kind of get into playing with it. And uh, it's written in a, really easy to follow manner and so if you're interested in playing around inside uh transcribing speech check it out so does it it adds punctuation then too like it'll it yeah it doesn't do so great with the commas and spacing and and probably the way i phrase myself <laughs> like things like dot com it didn't do so well it just kind of left the you know like real python and then com next to it hmm. gotcha so it I, there's a whole set of instructions in the API in my you know hour or so that I spent inside playing with this. I didn't dive too deep into that. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's a neat tool. We're we're looking at doing transcription for all our video courses, and um, I'll have a guest soon to talk about that on the podcast. Cool. And I'm very excited about that. I'm actually spending a lot of time kind of helping create it. This isn't the tool that we're using. It's yet another one that's out there. Anyway, it seems to be a a common thing and helps, you know, accessibility for some of the things that are out there. Yeah, for sure. Very cool. So what's your third article here? Uh, third one, again, 
continuing the theme of Python features. This one is a real Python article that we published uh, August 10th, real recent, uh, called Pass by Reference in Python Background and Best Practices. And it's by a brand new uh, real Python author, Marius Mogiorossi. And this discusses the concept of pass by reference and pass by value and how that works or doesn't work in Python. <laughs> right. Okay. And I think that I'm kind of curious to like, ha- have you read this article yet? I haven't yet. I, I was just working on a pointers course and it kind of dives into a lot of these concepts inside of Python. It's an upcoming course by Austin. Gotcha. So when, when you were new to Python, like brand new, did you like, had, were you aware of the difference between things like pass by reference, pass by value? Is that something you'd seen before? Or? So I, I spent a short time learning C okay, because I wanted to do objective C okay, yeah, mm-hmm. inside of, uh, you know, create apps for uh, iPhones right. and things like that. I was very excited by that idea. And so I read a, a couple C books very specifically. So I learned about pointers and I learned a little bit about reference and, and so forth there. And then Swift kind of like right, yeah, got rid of a lot of that. And then of course Python, it's all obfuscated and garbage collected, and it's like stuff you don't have to think so much about in that in that kind of same way. But it's interesting. I I think there's this. I think this is common. I don't have like you know a survey or it's just it's, it's an intuition. I'm I'm, I'm going to say that I think it's common that people come to Python, they see oh that like variables in Python are all because of the way things are assigned in Python. Like if I create a variable and assign to it a string, well, the string's not a, maybe not a, a good example, but you know, assign to it some value. Yeah. 3000. And then I create another variable. Maybe that variable is called a, and then I create another variable called B and assign it the value 3000. Well, they both point to the same object in memory. And that's like how Python works. It really tries to keep, you know, if if a, if the exact same object already exists in memory, just use that one. Just you know, point to point to that one, right? And it keeps track of like a, a reference count and everything. And when that reference count goes down to zero, that's when it, like it gets garbage collected. And there's all this stuff. And so I think people see some of that and they think, well, in that case, if I pass a, a variable into into a function as an argument, or if I pass some value it must be passed by reference because these variables are all just pointers basically to this uh, thing. So it's, it's passed by reference. And so I think that there's this misconception among a lot of, you know, newcomers into Python that that's just the way, like it's just passed by reference. There's no pass by value. Everything works by pass by reference. Well, it turns out that it doesn't, it's actually, it's not passed by reference. It's also not passed by value. It's a totally different kind of, uh, kind of thing. So this article talks about that. And I love the examples that he gives in here because it really, I think he just does a fantastic job of like just proving outright proving that it's not passed by value and it is not passed by reference. And I'm not going to give up the examples because I think it's kind of the cool part of reading, reading it. But I, I, I just want to say, I think, yeah, I just think he does a really good job of like just laying it out and it's like, it's just definitive proof. So you see it and you're like, oh yeah, Okay, it's not it's not passed by reference. Well, then what the heck is it? So he talks about uh, how assignment works in Python and things like scope and things like that, and what you know what really happens when you pass yeah 
an argument to a function? What's really going on behind the scenes? And what can we call that? So some of this is sort of, I think, specific to, like, it's an implementation detail, sort of. It's, uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm not an expert on CPython. We'd probably have to talk to Anthony Shaw to get the real sure. you know, nitty gritty on, on all this. But some of what's going on here, I feel like is, you know, maybe specific to CPython and perhaps PyPy or some other Python implementation, it might work slightly differently. But if you're using CPython, then this is, this is correct. But yeah, he talks about how it's really, he uses the term pass by assignment. And it's just, uh, it's just a really interesting article that really, again, you know, it's a deep dive into like how this stuff actually works. But what's, what's cool is it's, it goes beyond just talking about how this works. If you're coming from another language where pass by reference is something that you use quite a bit. So in, in this article, he's kind of referring to C sharp. And so I think he's got experience with like, you know, .NET uh, stuff as well as, as Python, but there's other languages too. He talks about common pass by reference patterns and how you would do that in Python and what the best practice might be. So he talks about sort of some tricks and tips where it's like, you're used to this pattern because of pass by reference. Well, here's how you would do that in Python. And in some ways, in some cases, it's like implementing or not implementing, uh, uh, imitating that pattern somewhat precisely. In other cases, he's saying, actually, don't do that at all. It's, this is Python. You're not in that language. Here's the Pythonic way to do right. you know, that. So there's a lot of these best practices and these, uh, these like common patterns that you would see and how you would do that in, in Python. So if you're coming to Python from another language where you use pass by reference a lot, this is a great guide to show you why Python isn't passed by reference and how you would implement some of those common patterns that you might be used to, to seeing. Cool. Yeah. I'm guessing it dives into the whole like high objects and that kind of stuff too. To some extent. Yeah. yeah. Not, uh, not a real deep dive into all that, but, um, but yeah, there's a little bit of that. Okay. So my next one is, as I was referring to earlier, it's by Itamar Turner Traring from Python Speed. Yeah. And it's called options for packaging your Python code, wheels, Conda, Docker, and more in it. He's got a very interesting website in general. It, kind of focuses a lot on these topics of packaging, working with Docker, efficiency. Um, he was recently on Python Bytes, was talking about a, a profiler tool he used for um, you know looking at how much memory is being memory, used. Memory profile, yeah. Yeah, it's called it fill, file, file or, or fill. <laughs> yeah. Kind okay. of like the profiler, yeah. So Right. And so in this one, the idea is, again, I want to share code or potentially distribute code to others what are sort of the options and it starts off with you know a pycon package installed with pip you know basically a wheel which again that article that we talked about earlier would definitely be a good resource for helping you with that again in this case you're if you're using custom c or c plus libraries they can you know be compiled with it which is kind of nice in in those cases that you need to be aware of what version of Python and what platform and, and so forth. A lot of this is focused on these additional, not pure Python, <laughs> like we were talking about with the wheels originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, very often, these are going to be specific, like, like stuff that's going to work on, say, a particular Linux distribution. And so you got to be aware of, you know, what's going on. And so he's, you know, very focused on C and, and 
again, kind of Python speed stuff, right? So, <laughs> right. And so that's one of the first choices. And then it was a tool called PEX, which I had to do some research on. It is a, a tool that's been around, I don't know, at least eight or nine years. And it it's a very popular tool for packaging up stuff. And it's a bit like a zip, again, uh, of sort of combining all your tools together and you know creating the single distributable executable file with your you know kind of code ready to go in it. And I'll include some resources to kind of give you a little more information on it. There's a kind of a nice video, sort of a lightning talk that was done by some people at Twitter uh, kind of showing it. Um, so you can kind of get in and out of it kind of quickly and not spend, you know, a couple hours diving deep into it. Yeah. And then a system package using something called RPM or DEB. Again, these are looking at Scent OS, uh, again, a Linux thing and, and Debian Ubuntu. And so this kind of, again, is very specific for being set up for these, you know, specific virtual machines in this case and how you're going to have it set up. I, I feel like there's a tendency moving away in some cases from virtual machines and moving toward something like Docker, partly for the portability and partly for the resources. And then it kind of leads into like, we had that conversation earlier about um, serverless technology and a lot of that's kind of leaning toward not only just running your code in the serverless sort of fashion, but also potentially, you know, setting it up to be able to run in a, a container. Then Conda packaging and which is sort of a bit like preparing things for PIP, but more specifically for like their thing called Conda Forge. And they have a, a thing sort of they call it a package channel kind of set up stuff inside of that. Mm-hmm. It goes into this one called Pi Installer and Pi Oxidizer, which are kind of in some ways similar to what I was talking to Russell with Briefcase, but again, more specific in this case, they're designed to create a self-contained executable. The one that I've used the most and used at my previous job was Pi Installer, and I was able to create uh, a couple little tools. In this case, it was on a Windows platform, and I was creating a tool that would like run a scheduler and then email certain documents out and so forth. And I was able to bundle it up in Pi Installer, and I was able to get it to run. In my case, I had a 64-bit machine, so I had to <laughs> find other, only it would only run on those other machines. And so it's one of those things where you need to, again, pay attention to your environment that you're developing on, potentially creating a virtual machine or something else to develop for. And Pi Oxidizer, I'll talk a little bit more about in a bit. Pi Oxidizer, the name's coming from Rust. It's sort of a Rust-based tool for compiling your, your code down. And the last is a container image, creating Docker, and there are some potential issues there. We talked a little bit about choosing the right kind of container. And it's something that I, I feel like I really want to bring him on the show. And so I've spoke to him a little bit through email. And so look for an upcoming episode where I'll talk to him a little more about this and dive a little deeper into this article. And he's got a nice comparison chart saying which way you'd want to go. I feel in a lot of ways, these are not the same kind of thing that you would create in something like briefcase where you want to create something that will run on a mobile device or be this, you know, object that you stick on a desktop and you can double click. It's more of typically what you're looking at with a lot of these tools, uh, something that would run from a terminal yeah, or in the, in a lot of cases, Docker or something, you'd have to download that Docker image and, and stand up and, and run from there. But it's a good comparison. And again, kind of compare and contrast a lot of things and things you need to think about and, 
again, if you're doing things that are geared toward data science and you're wanting to optimize your code and you're looking at adding C extensions and, and other types of libraries that, that use that kind of stuff, this might be of interest if you're, again, not just setting it up for yourself, but need to share these resources and, and uh, need to distribute it in some way. Yeah. So then we we're going to dive into projects a little bit. I think I'll just start off because mine was about Pyoxidizer. And so I, yeah, I, I downloaded it. <laughs> yeah. The, you know, the title of it is a modern Python application packaging and distribution tool. And it's a pretty recent project. And I didn't have a ton of time to, to go into it partly because there's a bit of a bit of a hurdle that you need to get <laughs> past initially, which is you have to install rust. And so um, I was able to install rust and that was actually one of the simpler parts of the process actually that it installed really pretty easily compared to other compiling tools I've used before. It, you know, it was a little more work. Uh, I'm using a Mac in this case, but that worked great. And um, so I got Rust install. I was able to confirm all that stuff with it. And then I went beyond that into just doing some of the basic stuff in their, you know, getting started guide. And I was able to create from a command line and compile, you know, a Python REPL <laughs> So I was able to, you know, okay. create this thing and in the end be able to run this little Pi app, they call it, and it opened up and boom, hey, I'm in a little REPL. So it was like kind of a, you know, in this case, a, a standalone app running, but I had to run it from the terminal in that sense. It uses a, a very interesting configuration file, which is, I think, the part that I got stuck on and I would need to spend a lot more time on to learn how you configure it. It's the file is pyoxidizer.bzl, which is their configuration file. Huh. I'm not familiar with the BZL file. I don't know if that's yeah. Rust specific, uh, but it feels a little bit like uh, when I was talking to Russell about Toml files and how those are used as sort of a markup to, you know, configure, you know, what's getting added, what you know, what's included, what's not included. It's very similar in that way, where you're having to plan in advance okay, this project is going to use requests. Okay, well, then I need to make sure that that's included here. I need to, you know, basically define what all my dependencies are before this thing can, can grab everything and, and, and compile it down. So that's that's the part I didn't have enough time to kind of mess with. I'm, I'm intrigued by it. Interesting. It seems like a, 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 a nice tool for it. But again, it's a little more geared toward, in my opinion, creating things that are going to run you know, in the end in a command line kind of format. Yeah. So anyway, it's a neat project to kind of dive into and learn a little bit more about if you want to see some other uh, resources. And so I, I just kind of been on this kick lately of like, okay, well, what's involved in <laughs> you know distributing my code and sharing code and from everything from wheels down to, you know, something advanced like Pyoxidizer. Yeah. I'm just looking at this. So this dot BZL it's, it's a basil file. Okay. And it looks like it's a totally separate project. And it, I guess, so it, you use this like language in it to configure so it's yeah. like configuration with by code essentially and it's called starlark and it's inspired by python 3 okay so it in fact i'm look i'm looking at the starlark docs right now and it, it looks almost exactly like uh like python python yeah okay that's that's interesting uh, it's got a lot of comments in the the when you set up uh, to start to build a packetizer project creates this configuration file for you and it has a ton of commentary where I got lost was like, what were uh, things that were actual comments and what, what were things that were actually 
things that I should be modifying. And so that was right. kind of where I got a little bit lost in the amount of time that I had to spend in it. <laughs> so, yeah. But this is like, um, it looks like Basil's sort of like an alternative to like a make, like a, okay. like a CMake uh, kind of thing. Um, but yeah, in- interesting. I'd never, never heard of it. So that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, I was impressed with Rust though. I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I thought their resources were really nice and, 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 you know, it was my first time d- diving into it, having had that long conversation with, uh, with Armin and, you know, talking about, you know, how much he's into using it and so forth. Um, it's, yeah, it seems like a very interesting language as far as the resources were and installing it was, it was pretty nice to, uh, get set up and running. Nice. Cool. Well, mine is not a single project. It is a list of projects. Yeah. Um, and I just found this and I just wish that I had had something like this, you know, when I was working in an office and, you know, had to produce PDFs occasionally. So this is, we talked about PDFs uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. And then I had, um, Mike on we talked about report. Yeah, Lab. exactly. <laughs> yeah. We talked about the, the article that I wrote, uh, that's a chapter from the Python basics book and that uses PyPDF2 to uh, manipulate PDFs. And then a little bit touches on Report Lab, like a very, very gentle introduction to a Report Lab. And then of course, Mike, you had Mike on and you talked yeah. in depth about Report Lab. This is, it's, I guess you call it an article. It's it's a listicle, I guess really sure. is what that's it is. A, that's a term, right? It is a term, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's called Python and PDF, a review of existing tools. And this is the list to end all lists of PDF tools in, in Python. I mean, it's just got everything on here with like some kind of short notes about what they are and what they do and, and why you would use them. And it's got stuff I had never even heard of. It's just uh, really cool. So it talks about PDF toolkits and like Python bindings for some of these uh, like toolkits in other other languages. So there's things like GhostScript, which is is a PostScript parser which PostScript is sort of like the original language, I guess, of PDFs or... Yeah, it's uh, sort of the layout stuff Adobe kind of created behind the scenes of everything. Yeah, and there's Poplar, which is uh, a tool for rendering PDFs, something called MewTool, which is another PDF viewer, PDF library. So these are not written in Python. These are like, you know, tools that are sort of like standard tools for working with PDFs. And then some of them have Python bindings that you can... So there's like PyMuPDF, which is a wrapper around the Mu tool. PDFLib, which is a wrapper around Poplar. There's one called PikePDF, which is a wrapper around something called QPDF, which is like a PDF manipulation library. So there's all, just all sorts of stuff. Talks about PyPDF2 and then PyPDF3 and 4 and the original PyPDF and this you know whole thing. And it actually links to one of Mike's articles on RealPython uh, to kind of learn about the history of all these different forks and everything, you know, mentioned report lab, uh, one called wheezy print, which is a cool one that I've used to generate PDFs from HTML, which is a nice one. Um, so yeah, there's just all sorts of stuff, you know, getting information out of PDFs. I've heard about PDF minor, PDF minor dot six, yeah. uh, which is a, a way to extract information, but there's some other things on here. There's one called parser P A R S R. And I was just looking at this. It looks really nice. It can take, a PDF and actually generate like a, like a JSON file that, uh, with uh, the information extracted and, and everything for you. Oh, cool. um, and it can be consumed by, by something else. So uh, that looks like a cool one. Tools for working with tables, tools for working with invoices, OCR libraries, pre-processing scans, 
just all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's got, I don't know, there's no count on here, but just, you know, it looks like there's probably 45, 50 different projects wow. on here in total. So yeah, just, uh, if you work with PDFs, then this is like the go-to resource for finding, finding stuff that you can, you can do with it, finding some new tools to work with, with PDFs. So I thought that was cool. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like an ongoing little theme <laughs> for us here too. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, thanks for coming on the show again. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me on again. All right. Talk to you soon. Yeah. See you later. I want to thank David Amos for coming on the show this week and bringing along all those great articles. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey. I look forward to talking to you soon.